Open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 8, Jeremiah 8 and verse 18 through chapter 9 and verse 11. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is Yahweh not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares Yahweh. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares Yahweh. Therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them, for what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow, it speaks deceitfully. With their mouth each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares Yahweh? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and lamentations for the pastures of the wilderness because they are laid waste so that no one passes through. And the lowing of cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the air and the beast have fled and are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a layer of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us of our dry eyes and our calloused hearts at those doomed to perish in the wrath that we sing and rejoice that we have been delivered from. Forgive us 
of the lies we tell ourselves, the lies we believe, and by your truth, conform us more to the image of your Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, in whose name we pray, amen. Our text both opens and closes with a lament of Jeremiah, followed by a corresponding condemnation, judgment from the Lord. You remember in 716, the prophet received this chilling command, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Whether or not that command came before or after Jeremiah's lament here, we can't be certain Jeremiah is not laid out in a strictly chronological fashion. But regardless, Jeremiah here is not praying for Judah to God. He is lamenting over Judah before God. He's obeying that command of David that comes in Psalm 62, 8. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. He's pouring out His heart. Derek Kidner writes, If all this, and he's referring to 8, 4 through 17, he says, If all this emphasize the iron necessity of judgment... The ensuing stanzas, 8, 18 through 9, 3, bring out the pathos, that is the emotion of it, in a mingling of cries from the prophet, the people, and the Lord. Here we have some of the clearest expressions of the deep agonies of soul that have resulted in Jeremiah being dubbed the weeping prophet. I wonder what you think of them as you read of his his sorrow for his people. I wonder how many of you think of what I've often heard concerning Jeremiah, that he was whiny. I don't think that's quite fair. Certainly, there are times whenever Jeremiah is whiny. So too was Moses. David. Elijah. And we don't categorically think of them as being whiny, though we have instances of them doing so in Scripture. My fear is that we categorically emasculate Jeremiah when so often we should emulate him. We've drawn a caricature of him, and we fail to see the glory Jeremiah's weak whining is recorded for us, yes, but so too his laudable lamentation. Just because the baby is crying doesn't then make it okay to throw him out with the bathwater. Jeremiah is a weeping prophet indeed, but he is not categorically a weepy prophet. We must recognize whenever he whines... And see ourselves there quite often. But most often, I believe, in Holy Scripture, Jeremiah's lamenting is put before us as something that is itself holy. Something that's meant to be emulated. 
So I ask, do you weep over souls? Do you pour out your heart before God concerned for the salvation of those near you? And if you don't, don't look down on Jeremiah. Look down on yourself. It is not that Jeremiah is a lesser man, but that we've become calloused ones. There need not be tears in your eyes, but is there an agony in your gut? A concern? A burden? And if there's no burden at all, I don't think you understand either your fellow man or God. I don't think you understand what it means to love your neighbor. And I don't think you understand the righteous wrath of the omnipotent God of hosts that abides on their souls. Why does Jeremiah grieve so greatly? Verse 18, his joy is gone, grief is upon him, his heart is sick within him. Why does he grieve so? He cries because of the cry of the daughter of his people, verse 19. Their cry is asking, essentially, where's God? Is Yahweh not in Zion? Is her king not in her? She's personified as this daughter, this desperate daughter looking for her king to bring deliverance in a time of woe. Then the word behold is our indication that as Jeremiah is lamenting, he's lamenting before God and he's calling for God to see this and that that's true is seen in that God responds to the cry of the daughter of Jeremiah's people. And his response to their question is to ask one, why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign Idols. Do you see how his question answers theirs? How it silences their question? They seek him in tragedy, but not in their lives. Judah has consistently committed adultery with her idols. And now that taxes are due for her lavish lifestyle... She accuses her husband of abandoning her. Where is he? But have we not all of us acted so foolishly in times of grief and trial? Where is God? C.S. Lewis captures this agony so powerfully in his work, The Grief Observed. And while what Lewis unfolds there is not always bound to such profound sin, I think all of us would say that we're guilty of desiring God so much more in the depths of some woe and grief and trial than we are whenever all is well. With brutal honesty, he writes, Meanwhile... Where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, 
So happy that you have no sense of needing Him. So happy that you are tempted to feel His claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to Him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to Him when your need is desperate. When all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face. And a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all. But, so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Of course, it's easy enough to say that God seems absent at our greatest need because He is absent, non-existent. But then why does He seem so present when, to put it quite frankly, we don't ask for Him? We ignore God. And then we blame Him for not being there when we taste something of the rod. And then, as though Judah is responding to God's question, she laments, verse 20, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. This is an idiom for their hopeless state. It means all their chances at life, at continuing, are past. They have no other hope. In the spring, grains like wheat and barley would be harvested. And then the final harvest came in the summer. They were looking for the summer fruits, such as grapes and figs. And now the summer's gone. In, the, in such an agrarian society, in the ancient world, harvest meant life. No harvest, no life. The idea that we've gotten so far through Jeremiah is this pervasive kind of famine. And so here, there's famine, and now the summer's gone. Their last hope for survival, it's past. You remember in chapter 8 and verse 13, it was this harvest, the summer harvest, that God said would be taken from them. Better communicated in the New American Standard. 8.13, I will surely snatch them away, declares Yahweh. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf will wither, and what I have given them will pass away. And so God's people are not saved. They're wounded. And you see, Jeremiah is wounded for their wound. His heart is bound to the people. You see that in just the way he's addressing them through here. Again, the daughter of my people. One commentator explains, the prophetic office meant that those whom God called as prophets were mediators of His message to the people. This privilege did not separate them from the people, but instead bound them to the people. For the brokenness of the people, Jeremiah himself felt broken. Jeremiah is not alone in this. You remember Moses pled, if you will forgive their sin, 
And if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. Exodus 32, 32. Or do you remember the desire Paul expressed in Romans 9, 1 through 3? I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He stated it most simply in the next chapter, 10 and verse 1, saying, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Jeremiah is not alone in this kind of longing, but he is exceptional. J.A. Thompson explains, The anguish sharing of the people's suffering was not peculiar to Jeremiah among the prophets. Men like Amos and Ezekiel entered deeply into the suffering of Israel. The problem of these men was that they were bearing a message of divine judgment while at the same time sharing the sufferings of the people either in vision or in fact. But they were men torn asunder between God and the people, to both of whom they were bound with deep ties. This combination of love and anguish is nowhere seen more clearly than in Jeremiah. And so it is, you see, that the people's cry now becomes Jeremiah's in verse 22. Is there no balm in Gilead? Do you see how this is an echo of, is there no king in her, in Zion, in Jerusalem? Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? So his cry echoes their cry, but while we sense the same agony of soul, there's not the same kind of hypocrisy. Because Jeremiah has spoken of their wound, he continues with that metaphor. Before we had this metaphor of a, of a daughter seeking her king for deliverance, but now it's, it's this wound And he asks, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Gilead was that hilly and wooded area to the east of the Jordan and north of Moab. It was good for grazing as well, but this wooded area, because of that, there was a balm that was derived from the resin of some tree that was known for its medicinal qualities. It's known for this healing balm. It would have the same kind of connotations as saying Mayo Clinic or something of that sort in their culture. And the question is answered, yes, of course, there's a balm in Gilead. Yes, there are physicians there. And so then the question follows, why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? And the answer to that question is the same one that God answered with a question earlier. Why have they provoked me to anger? The wages of sin is death and there's no balm in Gilead or anywhere that can heal such a wound. In Jeremiah 46.11, this word of judgment is pronounced on Egypt. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. In vain you have used many medicines. There is no healing for you. There's no healing for Egypt in Gilead. There's no healing in this land for the people who were promised this land. And so it is that Jeremiah wishes he had enough tears. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night. 
He longs for the capacity to grieve with his eyes as he is tormented in his soul. He wishes his eyes could flow with water as it feels his soul is bleeding. Some of you have experienced such profound grief that you have cried and cried until you feel as if though you could cry no more. And yet an ache remains in your heart wishing it had some vent. And some of you also know that even such grief can be mingled with faith. It's precisely because Jeremiah believes that he grieves so. He believes what is true of the righteous wrath of God. That is why he grieves. His grief proceeds from faith. His his grief is not any kind of doubt or denial. And also, notice this, he does not doubt God's justice in this. His second longing, verse 2, Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. As the psalmist so often does, Jeremiah pleads to be delivered from wicked men. See, it's plain whenever Jeremiah weeps over their souls, he does not wish God to act unjustly, to pass over, to ignore their sins. How often is it though whenever whenever something of God's wrath or His judgment or His chastisement is sensed by us, what we really are praying for is that bad things wouldn't happen rather than that bad things would be repented of, turned from. Is it that why we're so struck with with tears and weeping before our God is because idols are being destroyed such that our weeping is idolatry itself? God, you've destroyed our stuff. Or are the tears because we see the folly of the idolatry itself, and hate it. There's a tension between Jeremiah's two longings as he's weeping over the people and and desiring to be delivered from them. In one way, it's it's basically that he's, he's longing both for God's grace and His justice in this. He he desires deliverance for His people and deliverance from His people. And until kingdom come, this tension is ours as well. And yet we realize that really there's no tension. We know this because at the cross, salvation came by judgment. As the wrath of the holy God of heaven fell on the Son to deliver sinners. And we recognize that whenever Christ comes again, He will bring salvation by judgment as His wrath falls on His enemies, delivering His people. On the day whenever we see Christ in all of His glory, we will know 
that His grace was perfect and His justice was perfect. And we will see no tension between the two. We will behold the fullness of His grace and the fullness of His wrath and see no lack in either. We will praise His righteousness both as it's graciously imputed to the saints and we will praise His righteousness as it's wrathfully executed on the wicked. And we will say as those crowds that saw Him heal the deaf man, He does all things well. All things. Saints, whenever we pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray in the midst of this tension. And we can weep. We can weep tears full of Faith and joy and confidence because we know He does all things well. Well, picking up on Jeremiah's desire to be delivered from such treacherous men and answering his second lament, Why has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? God responds unfolding their treachery, their lies, their deceit, their falsehood. Why has their health not been restored? Emphatically, you see in this longest portion of any single speaker, verses 3 through 9 of chapter 9, God again and again speaks of their falsehood, their lies, their deceit, their untruth. They bend their tongue like a bow, verse of chapter 9. Their arrows are lies. They have weaponized falsehood. By it they've grown strong. One of the most beloved characters in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is Valiant for Truth. His name comes from the King James rendering of this verse. They bend their tongues like their bow for lies. They are not valiant for the truth upon the earth. There's nothing valiant in the way that they've grown strong by these lies. The the reason such falsehood has grown strong, or the reason it could be these senses, the reason they've grown strong by falsehood is because they proceed from evil to evil and they do not know Yahweh. Their falsehood is rooted in a pursuit of evil and ignorance of God. If you think lying a small sin for such a big judgment, I hope you begin to sense something of why it's not. The volume of lies corresponds to the void of knowledge of God in the land. Whenever God gave that ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, He preceded it and all the words from the fire, the Ten Commandments, saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So the pervasive dominance of lying in the land 
testifies that they do not know Yahweh as Lord. When a person or a people is dominated by lies, it means Yahweh is not their God because He commands, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It isn't simply, though, that they don't know Him as Lord. It's much more profound than that. It means that they don't know Him, the God of truth. Titus 1-2 tells us that God never lies. John Murray explains the deep roots of the, the reason truth is so sacred, saying, when we speak, therefore, of the sanctity of truth, we must recognize that what underlies this concept is the sanctity of the being of God as the living and true God. He is the God of truth and all truth derives its sanctity from Him. This is why all untruth or falsehood is wrong. It is a contradiction of that which God is. Lies and being anti-truth are anti-God. Their lies demonstrate that they are not children of Yahweh. They are children of the serpent. Just as Jesus told many, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth. Because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. This lies not only break down our relationship with God... They break down our relationship with one another. You see this. Let everyone beware of his neighbor. Put no trust in any brother. Al Mohler explains the corrosive effects that the acid of lying has on society. Lies subvert a fundamental requirement for civilization. Trust. If we do not trust our neighbors to speak the truth, then ultimately no civilization is possible. Think of the mounds of evidence that testify this is so. Think of any rental agreement you've ever put your pen to. Or whenever you buy a home or a car and the mounds and mounds of paperwork that say that one son of Adam does not trust another. When society is built on lies... A man doesn't know where he can put his foot down, so he tests every stone. And this makes for slow and agonizing work in society. But aren't we sent out as sheep among wolves? Shouldn't we expect that we are, the, we are the salt and light of the world? We are people of truth in a world of lies. Shouldn't we expect this? Yes, but because of God's common grace, we shouldn't expect honesty to be so uncommon a thing as it is in one regard. Further, here, Jeremiah and God in this dialogue are not concerned with the world. They're concerned with the people of God. And if you've ever hunted for a plumber or something like that, and felt dis-ease about calling the particular one you're looking at because there was a fish or a cross beside his name, then you've sensed something 
of what Jeremiah is conveying here. What God is conveying here. Among God's people, every brother is a liar, verse 4. There's a double kind of meaning here as the word uh, is a deceiver. Every brother is a deceiver. The word deceiver is the root for Jacob's name. Every brother is a Jacob. You can't trust your brother. Every neighbor is a slanderer. With the word slanderer, there's a line from Thomas Watson that helps link their sin to its effect of wearying themselves, committing iniquity, verse 5. Watson writes, the slander wounds three at once. He wounds him that is slandered. He wounds him to whom he reports the slander by causing uncharitable thoughts to arise up in his mind against the party slandered. And he wounds his own soul by reporting of another what is false. You see, they've become wearied both by and with iniquity. Lying is hard work. It's wearisome. You sow one, and then you find out the harvest is seemingly impossible to keep up with. Lies multiply and multiply. Further, the lies are planted in other people, so soon the weed has spread and it's pervasive and it's all around you. Lying is like writing a book that you know shouldn't be published because of the untruth involved. But because you're greedy for whatever kind of immediate gain you might have, you publish it anyways. But then, you're forever wearied with worry that you'll be found out. Lying zaps your strength. Living among a people of lies wears you down. And now we see, verse 6, that their lies, it isn't simply that they, they don't know Yahweh, but it's that they refuse to know Yahweh. What is with all the lies? What is with evolution? What is with all the idols around us that cannot deliver? What is with postmodernity and its denial of absolute truth? What is with all these lies? It is man refusing to know his creator. It is man trying to suppress the truth about God with lies. Why do people run to the media to gobble up all the lies? At root, it's this simple. It's because they don't want to know God. Why will men spend exorbitant amounts of of their wealth for a secular education? It's because they don't want to know God. Why are churches full of heresies and lies? It's because they refuse to know God. And so they embrace a lie instead. All of God's creation, all of God's revelation, persistently, unceasingly testify to the God of truth and the truth of God. And so man is forever making up lies to suppress that truth. This is why their cry for a king is not answered. It's not simply because they lie. It's because their lies speak to a utter refusal to know God. This is why their wound is not healed. They refuse to know Him. 
And the consequences, verse 7, God will test and refine them. And some venture that this is a more positive picture of refining than what we've had earlier in Jeremiah. I think it's the exact same kind of refining and testing. There's nothing about the language here that should make us think, oh, this is a purifying refining. No, I think it's the same kind of refining and testing that was spoken of in Jeremiah 6. I've made you a tester of metals among my people that you may know and test their ways. They are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron. All of them act corruptly. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on. For the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver they are called. For Yahweh has rejected them. The point of this refiner's fire is to test them. And I think we've already been told what the results of the test are. Every brother is a deceiver. Every neighbor goes about as a slander. Everyone deceives his neighbor. No one speaks the truth. The metal is tested and it's found to be false. And so then building up to his final condemnation in verse 9, he again presents their sin in verse 8. Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth each speaks peace to his neighbor. But in his heart... He plans an ambush for him. The tongue is this deadly arrow and its piercing power comes by means of deceit. Although words are a weapon that can be launched from a great distance, they do so by first drawing one close. Lies are an assassin's weapon. It's a sniper rifle which can hit you from a great distance, but while you are being targeted, the assassin has you on the phone telling you sweet words to draw you into his target. And so in light of such a wicked use of the tongue, God asks, shall I not punish them for these things? Truth-telling was one of the basic premises of the covenant Yahweh made with them. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh, Leviticus 19.11. Proverbs 6.17 says that lying is among those six things that God hates that are an abomination to Him. Indeed, you look at that passage and lying or a lying tongue and bearing false witness, it's mentioned twice in that list. David taught the people of God to sing that Yahweh destroys those who speak lies. So we should not be surprised that liars makes that list in Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for all murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. By lives so dominated by lies, they demonstrate that Yahweh is not their God. They do not know Him. And so God asks, shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this. The word you have there for nation is the one that's predominantly translated and understood in the sense of Gentiles. The nations. Those who do not know God. 
And that is what Israel is now regarded as, not his people. Jeremiah then weeps and wails for the land, verse 10. And he does this because it's laid waste so that no one passes through. Not even the lowing of cattle is heard. The birds of the air, the beast of the field are all gone. We sympathize with a family after they've lost home due to flood, fire, tornado. While we understand the home can be rebuilt, there are things that were precious, heirlooms that, that can never be regained. We weep for them. How much more should we weep for the family that's forcefully, by conquest, removed from their home, such as Israel is here? We can understand such tears, but something more profound and deeper is happening here. This is the promised land. It was meant to be a shadow of new creation. And if they have no part in the shadow, they have no part in the reality of the new earth. You see, the the greatest blessing of this land was that Yahweh dwelled in their midst. That He was their God and they were His people. If they are cut off from the land, the idea is they are cut off from God. He's rejected. He's forsaken them. To be cut off from the land meant that they were no Noahs. Being delivered unto new creation. But they shared in the plight of this world that's to be destroyed. So don't make light of Jeremiah's tears. Rather, look at this world doomed for the wrath of God Almighty and weep for her. Saints, if we cannot weep over the souls of others, can we really rejoice over our own? We were every one of us children of the father of lies. Culpably so. We were doomed for eternal wrath. But by his very truth. He made us new. So that we hate the lies. And we love the one who is the truth. And we speak the truth. Not perfectly in this life, but we long for it. We long for that world made new where lies are no more and the knowledge of Yahweh, knowledge of Him, covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And if that's true of you, if you've been truly delivered from such wrath and judgment by such great grace, you long for others to sing and rejoice and know it too. And you'll weep over their souls. Sinners, do you see yourself guilty? Not just of little white lies, but of the lie. 
The lie Paul speaks of in Romans 1.19 of, of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Of all the lies we tell, the most damning one is the one we tell ourselves about God. Perhaps you're telling it to yourself in the way that, that the people of Judah were. The temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. You think because you possess something, a church, or because you've done something like baptism, you think that because of something you've done, that such judgment won't come upon you. That is a lie. Or perhaps you're telling yourself that there is no God. Or that God isn't like that. He's a God of love. Basically, you're trusting this, that God would not send you to hell. But know this truth. For a lie believed, all humanity was condemned. And if you don't believe that so, look around at this world saturated by lies. And if you can't see it in that, see it at least in this. That you care so very little for God when all is well. And then you accuse Him at the slightest trial, asking where He is. If you sense then something of the ugliness of your lies so that you then save yourself. Shall He not punish me for these things? Shall He not avenge Himself on such a sinful liar as myself? If you come to that point, then realize this truth as well. That Jesus is not only the truth, He is the life and the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Father sent His Son, who lived truthfully unto the Father, obeying Him to be the righteousness of those who would trust in Him, and who died bearing the Father's wrath for our lies, our sins. So that all who trust in Him might know Him and have eternal life. And if you do trust in Him as the way, the truth, and the life, then you're among those that John addresses saying, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Sinner, this morning, I believe there is a multitude who would weep for you to know their God this morning.
may he grant you repentance. May you know him, and knowing him, know life eternal. Let's pray. Father, for our neighbors, for our friends, for our family, for our children, for our community, so many of whom think they know you, but their belief is a belief in a lie. For these souls, we weep. And I pray, Father, you would give us boldness than to tell them the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that we would see your salvation. We do not deny that your righteous wrath is all we deserve. but for the glory of your Son. We long to see the elect gathered in. And glorified. And glorify you in knowing you. In the name of Jesus, amen.